Hiya, and thank you for joining me for a very special edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Mel Debenham, a partner in our Perth office specialising in environment planning, heritage and native title regulation in Australia. I feel proud and grateful to be recording today on Wajak Noongar country, looking out at the Derbyarrigan on a crisp but sunny Makaroo day. I'd like to pay my respects to the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation and their elders, past, present and emerging, and in particular, acknowledge the strength of their connection to country and culture and the generosity with which that is shared with people like me, who also get to call this fantastic country home. This episode coincides with NAIDOC Week, an important time in our national calendar here in Australia, held in the first week of July each year, to recognise the history, culture and achievement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it's an opportunity to listen and learn about First Nations cultures and histories and also participate in celebrations of the oldest continuous living cultures on earth. It wouldn't be a special episode of The Third Wheel without not one but two guests. First up, it's my pleasure to introduce our listeners to Herbert Smith Freehill's very recently appointed Responsible Business Manager, Gemma McKinnon. Gemma has focused much of her career on public housing in the context of human rights and administrative law principles. And amongst many other achievements, she was a technical advisor at the Referendum Council Regional Dialogues and the Constitutional Convention at Uluru. Welcome to the podcast, NHSF Gemma. Thanks for having me. Uh, Very happy to be joining from Gadigal Land. Fantastic. Um, And we're also joined by Kachaya Delaney, a solicitor in our pro bono team in Sydney and a member of the Uluru Statement Youth Dialogue. Welcome, Kachaya. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And I'm also recording from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm so pleased that we have got um, such well-credentialed guests to speak today and and excited because um, given your experiences and combined with Australia's evolving political landscape um, since changing government at the recent election, um, I think we've got a a great space to focus on the Uluru Statement from the heart today, um, as well as the important progress we might expect. But before um, we launch into the questions and and get thinking on that side of things, uh, we have a little tradition on the pod to start with a personal reflection about ESG. Gemma, I'm hoping you'll start us off and share with us why the environment, social and governance space is important to you. Thank you. And I should also mention I am a Barkindji woman from Mulcanya on the Darling River in far west New South Wales. Um, And, uh, yeah, happy NAIDOC week to everybody. Uh, ESG, I think, is a, a reflection of values and priorities society now I think particularly um, for millennials I know uh, the recent census data says that uh, millennials are I think the same percentage of the population as boomers now so I think that yeah ESG is a reflection of um, of newfound values and priorities and I think that organizations are aware that people are much more conscious of the impact of their choices um, particularly when it comes to, to business, to procurement, um, 
to how we spend our money. Um, and also conscious of the historical impacts of the of industry on the planet and on the community. And so I think because society wants to do better, um, ESG is business's way of responding to that. And I think for my work um, in particular, um, it's a recognition that responsible business is not just the right thing to do or a nice thing to do, but it's actually good for business, um, which is, you know, I think is fantastic um, because I think that it means that organisations are resourcing this work well and, and um, giving it its, its um, due respect. It's a great answer, Gemma. Um, you know, conscious consumption resonates with me as well and, and I like that idea of, you know, businesses putting this front and centre. Um Kashai, do you have any observations to make about why ESG is important to you? Yeah, I'll also quickly introduce myself. I'm a proud Wiradjuri woman with connections to the Bogan River Bulgandra mine mob. Uh, and I think for me, when I think of ESG, I think it's about recognising that the consequences of our actions go way beyond just like ourselves. And I think as individuals, we're always told to think of others, but Organisations don't exist in a vacuum and those actions have broader community impact and impact the environment. So I just think it's really great to see that there's such an increased awareness of that in recent years because it really does have impact on people's lives on the ground. That's a really nice segue, I think, um, because obviously collectively we can have adverse impacts on the environment society, but we can also have really positive impacts. Um, and Five years ago, hundreds of First Nations leaders gathered at Australia's centre to do just that, take the, the conversation around First Nations people within um, Australia further and to endorse the historic Uluru Statement for the Heart. In preparing um, for the pod today, Kashai, I listened to your recording um, of the Statement of the Heart and I don't know if this is possible, it felt to me even more powerful and compelling in 2022 than it did five years ago. Um, I know there would be disappointment in progress that has been made between um, then and now, but there has been a lot of attention in recent weeks and I guess um, a feeling of momentum, particularly with the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, beginning his victory speech with an acknowledgement of country that included a commitment to the Uluru Statement of the Heart on behalf of the Labor Party. But before talking about the journey that is ahead of us, I thought it might be helpful to start with an explainer. What is the Uluru Statement for the Heart and what does it say? Kshaya, can you kick us off? Yeah, sure. So the Uluru Statement from the Heart is an invitation to the Australian people to walk with First Nations people for a better future. It was initially gifted in 2017 following a series of 13 First, Nation, First Nations regional dialogues held across the country, culminating in the National Constitutional Convention at Uluru. The dialogues enabled over 1,200 First Nations people to have a real say for the first time on what meaningful recognition looked like to them. Because, as you might know, constitutional reform has been on the agenda for decades, so that there's already been a lot of work before that that had gone into sort of looking at the different options for reform and, and seeing what it could look like. But it was at the dialogues where different community members came together over a weekend to learn about the constitution and civics and discuss and debate the different options and they ranked them. 
And so then the representatives from each of the 13 regional dialogues were selected and they travelled to the heart of the nation at Uluru with their sort of the preferences of their dialogues and for the National Constitutional Convention where they worked to try and find a consensus. And this was where the Uluru Statement was written and this is where it was read for the first time. And yeah, I, I think a lot of people have heard of it, but they haven't actually read the statement itself. And it's such a beautiful and powerful piece of writing. So I really implore people to, to go on and read it on the website if you haven't already. But I also agree. I think listening to it has just like a different level of impact. But Essentially, the sort of gist of the Uluru Statement is that it calls for two reforms, a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Australian Constitution and a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making and truth telling. And so the voice to Parliament would be a representative body giving First Nations people a say in the laws that affect them, such as laws made through the racist power, which enables the Parliament to make laws specifically about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so the idea is that by enshrining it in the constitution through a referendum, the voice would become an institution of lasting significance that would also be kind of protected from the whims of government or changes to the party in power. Because I think for a long time, First Nations issues have been used as almost like a political football. So rather than being subject to that the vulnerability of legislation, the voice is intended to kind of withstand that through constitutional enshrinement. Gemma, as I mentioned earlier, you worked on the regional dialogues that resulted in the Uluru Statement. Um, and I also mentioned earlier that feeling of momentum. Are we closer than ever to moving past symbolic recognition, some say as early as May 2023? Um, but what do you think it will take to successfully deliver a referendum on enshrining a First Nations voice to Parliament in the Constitution? It really feels like momentum is gathering I think there's more of a sense of of hope um, within the community that this might actually happen <laughs> I think particularly compared to after the last election where um, there was a lot of disappointment um, amongst the the community and people involved um, in this reform I think now that we're sort of looking at the, the a real possibility of a referendum that's first in a really long time, um, I think the role of the legal profession is actually um, key to uh, to running a successful referendum. Um, constitutional law for the community um, is all about explaining really complex legal questions that I think a lot of um, a lot of lawyers find difficult to to grasp sometimes it's not something that we um, interact with necessarily on a daily basis so um, questions of constitutional law are, um, are, are in, inherently difficult and I think that the role that the legal profession can play in um, not you know and when I say successful referendum I'm not necessarily referring to to a yes or 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 to a no, it's more, um, I guess, about going through this process um, relatively unscathed from, uh, I, I guess, from uh, from the perspective of how we operate as a society, um, and and I think that 
if the legal profession can start to sort of turn its mind to how we can best explain the 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 complex legal machinations that happen behind the scenes um, and then are sort of distilled down into a very simple question that's put to the community and being able to as much as we possibly can explain what that could look like on the other side um, you know putting inserting uh, a provision in the constitution that gives us um, that places this this voice the parliament in our constitution what will that look like um, on a daily basis how might it impact um, on you know I think the issues that people often automatically associate with 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 indigenous issues things like justice things like housing um, how is it that you know, one thing translates to another. I think that's our role as lawyers um, is to be able to to distill that and and to explain it in a way that's easy for the for the public to digest, so that they can make an informed decision about what they're voting on. Um, yeah, I think that will. Um, I hope anyway that that will um, successfully deliver a referendum, and I hope it does happen soon. Um, because I do think that um, the momentum can get lost and we've seen that over time um, that, you know, new new issues come to the front and, and others are pushed to the back. And um, what we did find out during the, the process of the regional dialogues is that for, and it's easy to forget this as people in capital cities especially, but for some people, and particularly people in uh, rural, regional, and remote areas. Um, time is of the essence, you know. Um, communities that don't have access to um, clean water or sealed roads or, you know, adequate health and, and, and education, they need this change now. Um, so it's not so much a case of, um, but, you know, I think for a lot of people, they don't want to sit around and wait until it's politically the right time or um, until the you know, next term of government even uh, for a lot of people that they're, they're sort of desperate for this change now. So I think it's really important to to um, to keep the momentum going and to strike while the iron pot. Gemma, um, I couldn't agree more on the role of lawyers. Um, constitutional, you know, constitutional law is is hard, right, even for the most brilliant legal minds to get around. Um, and I think there'll be an art communicating what does this mean, and not, you know, for the general public, but also for biz businesses as well. Um, it, there, there's a, there'll be a, a really important role for clear communications to all stakeholders and a bit of demystifying, I think. Um, and, and I also think it's, you know, I agree having spent a bit of time um, in regional Western Australia, it's very easy um, in urban areas to forget what's just outside of our, our backyard, right, um, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and, you know, the urgency, I, I think, that there is around having some equitable um, standards in terms of housing, health and education, um, if if we've got any hope of, of tangible, enduring change. 
Um, so we've spoken a little bit about constitutional reform, but um, Kshaya mentioned um, the Makarata Commission to oversee that process of treaty, treaty making and truth telling as well. Um, Gemma, can you explain to our listeners why it is called the Makarata Commission and how it might work in practice um, and whether the thinking has evolved over the past five years as to what the commission would be would be doing and how? Yeah. Um, so Makarata is a, is a Yolmu word, um, meaning the coming together after a struggle. Um, and it was... Uh, Gullera Unipinga gave us permission to to use that word. Um, And I think that it was chosen not just, you know, not just sort of symbolically, but also because what we're talking about in this, you know, what we were talking about when we um, were running the regional dialogues was sort of generally under the banner of agreement making. Um, so for some people that um, that translates to, tr- to a treaty, but I guess there's also recognition that um, what what we're talking about when we talk about the work of, of a Makarata Commission is about different types of agreement making. Um, one of the really sort of key things that came up all around the country was the need, for example, for um, for First Nations to um, treaty amongst themselves to sort of heal the, that there's a lot of um, healing and uh, and reconciliation that needs to happen amongst First Nations. Um, I think you know years of of um, dealing with you know. Uh, Native title disputes, land rights disputes, um, that has taken a toll on, on our communities, and I think that a lot of people felt that that it, it only made sense to um, to treaty amongst ourselves before um, before agreement making with governments necessarily. Um, how it might work in practice, I think, you know, this is the, the what creates the importance of the sequencing of voice followed by Makarata, because the idea is that the voice itself um, is able to oversee the creation of the commission um, and to consult and, and work with First Nations around the country to develop something that works for them. And I think in both agreement-making and truth-telling processes, um, being informed by First Nations people and communities is essential to the success of those processes. Um, what works for the community in, in Ross River in the Northern Territory is not necessarily what's going to work or be necessary for, um, for communities in, in Melbourne or Sydney. Um, or in the Trans Strait, um, so there's definitely different um, de- different visions. Uh, I think for what Makarada looks like, what Makarada means, what truth telling means, and looks like, um, depending on um, on where you are and um, 
and on the on the history of your community. I know in Western Australia when we did um, when we had the Broom Dialogue, um, agreement making wasn't particularly high on the list of priorities for the community there because of um, you know fatigue, agreement making fatigue. <laughs> um, it's a real it's a real thing. Yeah, the Absolutely. demands on communities by um, by the resource and energy sectors. Yeah, and I think it's um, it also is such a and, and I think people, particularly in WA, understand this is that it's such a or uh, what we would call a lawyer's picnic. You know, it really tends sort of become something that's uh, uh, not necessarily what people automatically think of when they think about treaty or when they think about agreement making. Um, Sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a um, you know a, a great idea, but then you know maybe ten twenty years down the track when you're still working on that agreement or when you're still arguing about the terms of that agreement, um, I think it looks a lot less shiny and desirable. So um, I think understanding what it is that the community wants and needs is going to be key to the success. Of, of Macarada and truth telling, and it's the you know it is the role of the voice of Parliament um, to facilitate that and and to censor First Nations voices in that process. Um, and I think your your comments around you know that need for healing reconciliation, but all of that being driven by the community is is really important. Um, it's not an opportunity. Um, for us to sort of come in and dictate a process, it needs to be the the structures need to be in place through voice, but then it's that that ground up um, approach. And um, you know, you mentioned a few times, Gemma, truth telling, um, and obviously truth is a very important thread through the whole of the Uluru Statement. Kashaya, I understand you spent some time as a project officer for Towards Truth. Can you tell us a bit about that um, and take us through some of the findings you came across to support Truth Telling? Yeah, so Towards Truth is a project which is formed as like a partnership between the Public Interest Advocacy Centre and the UNSW Indigenous Law Centre. Um, and so during my time at, as a project officer, I was helping to lead the project to build a database of all of the law and policy that has impacted First Nations people since first contact throughout the whole of Australia. So it's a mammoth project. But the idea is that Scary, it's... Scary, scarily long, I suspect. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And the idea is it's going to be used as a framework for localised truth-telling processes um, as called for by the Uluru Statement. So it, it's... Later this year, it's going to be launched as a publicly accessible website that people, communities can use to sort of get a better understanding of the history of law and policy. But I think it's really important to remember where truth came from in terms of the Uluru Statement, because it wasn't one of those reforms that was on the table at the dialogues that was sort of an option. And it it emerged very naturally in the way that the delegates that attended those dialogues spoke a lot about their history as their personal history, their community's history, uh, and it became this really sort of common denominator across the dialogues that truth is something that's very important to our people across the board. Um, and so 
we really needed to honour that in terms of this project. And that's why it's designed to be localised, community-based truth-telling, as opposed to national or sort of top-down processes of truth-telling, which are often used um, to kind of delay other substantive change. So things like, they're obviously very important, but they sometimes don't lead to very much action. And I think looking at the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody or the Bringing Them Home report, we know that they're very significant truth-telling at a national level that didn't really lead to very much substantive change. Uh, and so the way that the database works to support this is by mapping documents like legislation, journal articles, reports, um, across a really broad range of topics. So child removal, language, land rights, and it maps it over time to show how it changed and it maps it across different jurisdictions. It's a really inc incredible project. I'm so proud to have worked on it. And I'm really happy that I get to continue this work while at HSF as the firm provides huge levels of pro bono legal research support. So I'm able to now help lead that work internally. But I guess in terms of the findings, from my perspective, the database is essentially a record of what happens when First Nations people don't have a say in the law and policy that affects them, um, because there are so many examples in the database where laws are sort of pushed through with limited consultation or kind of limited engagement in the way that a lot of First Nations people aren't looking at the laws that are going through, and they're often pushed through in sort of limited time. Um, there's often commentary in the second reading speeches saying, have we properly engaged with community on this? Um, and so often we see where laws have that adverse impact. It's because decisions being made at a government level with such little input from the community that those decisions are going to sort of impact the most. And so you can see because we include both the sort of law itself and explanatory materials like second reading speeches, but also reports and journal articles. You can also see that kind of how government truth-telling processes like reports and investigations are often just left sitting on the shelf. So it shows that importance of the sequencing in the sense that truth, while it's very important, it's an ongoing process, consistently we're doing truth-telling, it's not the voice is the number one priority because that's the, what's going to actually lead to real substantive changes. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of history in the database, which I think would surprise a lot of Australians. I think many people aren't aware of how much it was embedded into our legislation, um, still is. And I think that, you know, the law can oppress, but it also can empower. So it's also seeing the way that it has evolved over time. Um, really shows the impact of, of the law on First Nations people's lives. Yeah. That sounds like a fantastic resource. Um, and so I look forward to when that will be generally available to people um, because I, I think it will, um, you know, it doesn't provide a roadmap moving forward, but it does show the importance of making sure that First Nations, First Nations people are in the room when laws are made that impact them. Um, I guess another positive that came out of the federal election was greater representation by First Nations people within the parliament. Um, that doesn't diminish the need for a voice, but I think hopefully that is also one step in the right direction as well, making sure that there's, you know, people in the room who can speak to those impacts from a, from a personal perspective. Mm -hmm. um, Gemma and Kshaya, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Um, for the first time, something tells me it won't be the last though, so I hope you'll agree to, to come back and um, hopefully talk to us again when um, we're a little closer to or in the thick of a referendum. That would be fantastic.
we will continue to monitor developments and um, I look forward to being able to share insights, um, including um, those from Gemma and Kashaya with you on um, other episodes. Now, we usually close out each episode with an interesting fact from the world of ESG. I thought today we would remind everyone of this year's NAIDOC theme. This year's theme is Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up. It's about genuine and shared commitment to secure institutional, structural, collaborative and cooperative reforms, and so well aligned with the objectives of the Uluru Statement from the heart. In setting the scene for this year's focus, the National NAIDOC Committee has said, we need to move beyond just acknowledgement, good intentions, empty words and promises and hollow commitments. Enough is enough. The relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and non-Indigenous Australians needs to be based on justice, equity and the proper recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' rights. Get up, stand up, show up with us to amplify our voices and narrow the gap between aspiration and reality, good intent and outcome, um, which I, I think is absolutely brilliant and a real call to action for us all. Um, this year, um, sort of coming out the other side of COVID, it has been great to see so many in-person events around Australia and ways to get involved. And if you want to know what's happening near you, um, take a look at nadoc.org.au um, and they've got all of the local events that um, you can participate in. The highlight event this year was the National NAIDOC Awards, which were held in person after a two-year hiatus because of COVID um, on Saturday evening in Melbourne. And I just want to congratulate all of the nominees and award winners, but in particular, Ash Barty, who uh, was awarded 2022 Person of the Year. Um, such a great achievement for such an absolutely phenomenal role model. On that note, we'll close out the pod. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.